out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist singer-songwriter. It is the one and only Christian Hayes, sometimes known as Bick Hayes to his friends and has been in a lot of bands including Dark Star Levitation, um, worked with Julianne Reagan once and also the Dave Howard Singers. But the journey starts, well it does start a little bit before this, but um, it was when he was in Ring that um, he came onto our radar. They were a band who appeared at the Glastonbury Festival in 1987 on the Traveller's Field. That is a true story. Anyway, you'll find out more about this and lots of other stuff. Um, I think that's all you need to know. The rest of it is just going to be an interesting chat. This is, um, after several minutes of casual conversation, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bic, tell us now, tell us everything. Um, well, I'm born in the same year, so... Um, but, Fine year. Uh, yeah so um I, I don't know i mean when i was very young when i was going i just remember being ill and off school and I, that's the first time i started to hear music because my, my, um you know the radio my mum used to play the radio yes um, i have the radio going and, and when i was off school and sick I, it used to be the beatles and I, I didn't like it i didn't like the sound of the beatles at all i mean this is the early beatles stuff has always been played on the radio and it I just didn't like it, but I think probably the first thing I heard that made me sort of sort of switch on was probably um, California Dreaming. Right. My mamas and the papas, and I, I remember hearing that, and um, I was I, I had I must have had flu or something as well, and it just seemed amazing to me. It just seemed really beautiful and kind of different and sort of three dimensional, and um, in a way that other music hadn't done it and that was the sort of beginning and it was the tears of a clown as well I remember that that was really I thought that was really exciting for some reason when I was really really young yes well, actually, actually uh, but, bizarre. But I'm talking about being being a child you know when you you just don't know anything and you're just reacting to the feeling of things yeah because I because I because I, I was the only kid at school I was I grew up in East Anglia I was the only kid at school with asthma so I spent a lot of time off school because asthma hadn't been kind of diagnosed particularly so I was just kind of wheezing away thinking you know probably I was going to die but they they would just give me cough medicine and say you know he'll get better in a week's time it was like no I'm still getting worse so it was I did spend a lot of time at home with my mum listening to radio too and Jimmy Young what's the recipe today and hearing those kind of Burt Bacharach sort of songs which I loved and then actually one of the first songs I can remember was Still a Black Step Inside Love and I thought it was the most dramatic song I've ever heard and then you hear sort of teen spirit you know in the late 80s and you think oh that's kind of quite the same song isn't it really you know <laughs> if you think about it there's that slow slow and then fantastic and then it was yeah. written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon they think oh that's weird but um Step Inside Love by Scylla Black I still think is a classic so um it's funny how those songs do kind of when you sort of remember them you know it's like yeah that was and then you listen to it you know you can have a little listen and think god it's much better than I even imagined this is really good Kurt Cobain I know where you got your ideas from so um yeah there you go that's it yes mum listened to radio too it was kind of a classic wasn't it in the 60s yeah yeah I mean that's my first and then but like you I mean I think sort of uh glam kind of stuff was I mean I think the first single I ever got was Get It On um, yeah, T-Rex, but um, 
I seem to remember that and was it Cozy Powell Dance with the Devil or something? Yes, like that? a drummer who did who, who did a who did a solo solo album. I probably I, thank God I didn't get the album, but I do remember him on top of the pops drumming away for the love of drumming. Yeah, I don't remember that song at all, but I I, I had it. But then then of course. I mean, my parents didn't, they listened to a bit of music and, uh, and that was definitely, I mean, the sort of in, when I was a kid, it was uh, The Who, Tommy, was really struck me, like the, and obviously some Bowie and Transformer, you know, Lou Reed Transformer. Yes. But I think the thing that really opened it up was um, Piper of the Gates Dawn. It was because um, a friend of my father's worked in a, was actually a friend of my mother's worked in um, a record shop, local record shop. I lived in the suburbs, and he gave me a copy of. I think I must have been about eight. And he gave me a copy of. <clears throat> he gave me the mono copy of Piper at the Gates of Dawn, because I think he bought the stereo one. He didn't want that one anymore, but he gave it to me, and I didn't know what it was, and I played it. And again, it was like a, a little world opening up, sort of behind the wall, and you could look into it, and it was it just kind of changed everything. Right. That was that was again when I was eight. Um, that was still really early, but I really liked that record, and nobody else in the house did, but I did. <laughs> um, and then, I, and I, I don't know that just sort of went in, but later on, obviously, punk happened, and that kind of changed everything because instead of, you know, it's the typical thing that everyone says about punk, but instead of sort of you know these people who came from another planet who were totally unreachable, it was all about you could do it yourself. Yes, but you but were you old enough to appreciate punk? Because I, I mean, again, was born in the countryside, so punk didn't get there until probably about nineteen ninety, really. But I mean, <laughs> completely passed me by, you know. But I did have an older brother who was seven years older, and he and in the early seventies, he started getting a record collection together, and it was things like I remember it was Sergeant Pepper, the um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. But he was really into prog rock, with. Uh, Pink Floyd's um, Umba Gumba, which I remember he got very Gumba, yeah. with the one where you, you know you would just kind of sit in the living room and he go oh listen you can hear them moving from one speaker to another yeah yeah, yeah that's amazing yeah. and thinking wow that's art and um, you know because I kind of I suppose looked up to him I kind of wanted to really like all those uh, records and I did I even liked the solo work of Rick Wakeman in fact which was a bit strange you know decades later you know, so, I, I didn't really know any of that I still don't know much of all that stuff it wasn't really around I know people that like a lot of that kind of thing yes. it's not much to go to um, I don't blame I you it's it's I think yes some of the yes stuff is all right um not a, I wouldn't say Genesis was that great but I, yeah it was all right it was it was fine but he did have a few Pink Floyd records thrown in there and but it was very prog you know he loved prog oh, yeah, yeah. and Black Sabbath you know thrown in as well which was quite a new I think that's what everyone did in the sort of mid 70s if you were a certain age and and a certain type you know yeah I mean I sort of missed out on that I mean it was only sort of when you became a teenager and you sort of mix with other people and you start to get other things coming in I mean there were, there were sort of people in uh, well it wasn't even called heavy metal then like Black Sabbath and stuff but I, I remember hearing bits of that but it didn't really connect with me at all um I mean I think the thing for me is I mean I, you were sort of saying about punk not reaching the country I mean I live in the suburbs of London the West London suburbs and it came quite quickly to there, sort of about 1978, 77, 78, um, you know, things started to change. Um, 
and of course you know i was how old was i, I was like 13 14 so yes. you know, I, was, I was young but you know we caught the beginning of the sort of the next you know what what do they call it um post-punk post-punk which is kind of what i i kind of really grew up with and that's what we listened to but we i suppose it was sense. the stuff that was the stuff that was coming on top of the pops like i suppose the skids i was very excited when you heard those bands and um looking in gary gill gilmore's eyes anything that got into the because yeah because the top 20 on a Sunday evening and Top of the Pops were just such big kind of programs, weren't they? You didn't mm. miss them because that was that was your only chance. So, you know, anything like that that got on was was kind of exciting. And then you sung it in school the next day with great enthusiasm, really. So um, so when did a guitar creep into your life? Um, well, I, I <laughs> when I was, I was mentioned about Tommy and, and The Who, and I remember hearing that when I was a kid, and I really wanted to make that noise um, in Pimble Wizard, which uh, took me years to work out. It was the bass and not the guitar, but I thought it was a guitar. You know, the <laughs> da yes. And I thought, I want to do that. That sounds good. So I started pestering my parents to sort of get a guitar when I was eight and sort of obviously got acoustic guitar, and it was, that wasn't much fun. Yes. I did have a few lessons from a hippie that lived up the road. He showed me some chords. Was it, kind of Sorry? was it Neil Young? Sorry? Was it Neil Young? It wasn't Neil Young, no. No, um, not the bloke, obviously, but <laughs> the song, the song, were they Neil Young songs? Because hippies normally played Bob Dylan or Neil Young. No, he, he used to play these songs that I just didn't know at all. Um, but the interesting thing about, and, and he used to give me these, all the words written out with the chords written above them. And what I realised is I actually could take that in and, and, and learn the song quite quickly. Um, as in like, these, these songs that I'd just never heard before. Because yeah, he didn't give you a cassette with the song on it, he just sang it. Yes. There, and, and you went away and sort of remembered it. And, and I was able to do that. And I don't know, it was, it was quite strange because I didn't know any of the songs he said. I didn't know, I can't remember any, what any of them are now. But it was just so you could learn the chords. And yeah. So I did that, but I got bored of it because I, I think I would have wanted an electric guitar. So it wasn't until, you know, punk, you know, the, the, the sort of punk happening and kind of really, you know, becoming a teenager. Uh, it was like, oh yeah, I've got a bit of a head start on this. So I, I managed to get myself an electric guitar and started to play around with that and, you know, try and get some people together to start doing something. But it took a while really. Um, yeah. so and I didn't know really anything about writing songs or how to do it or, or anything, but I didn't really care. I just wanted to make noise. And, um, so when you got to 1980, you were 16. Did you stay on at school or did you leave at that stage? No, no, I went to art school. I didn't know what art school was. I left school. I hated school. And when I left, um, I don't know, I heard about art school. And I thought that sounds interesting because um, I've never done any art and, or anything like that. And I wanted to see what that was like so I went to art school in Richmond and did a two-year foundation and that was a kind of real eye-opener because I really actually enjoyed it yeah. the first time actually going somewhere I enjoyed it and of course there was met loads of people lots of and freaks that was a very exciting time yeah I guess. Well, the, great, the interesting thing then was you know you had punks hippies kind of skin I mean it was just such an interesting time you had all these sort of weird tribal people but you know apart from the skinheads who were a bit scary and violent you know, most people got on and yes. then of course and then you got to sort of mix with hippies and sort of ended up 
finding out about drugs and that changed everything. What about what about the kind of new romantic period? Because we've been in London ish yeah. and, and sort of yeah. that blitz kids, you know, world and yeah, especially with art school, people must have been walking around with eyeliner on and sort of being a bit sort well, of I, there, I mean what year was it about nineteen eighty? was I mean nineteen eighty was an incredible year for music. I mean it's so much interesting music and sort of stuff that was below the radar. Like interesting things like um, I don't know, flying lizards and family fodder and kind of weird, interesting bands that sort of just disappeared really. Um, I was into a lot of that, like lots of sort of really different stuff. But what really ha- what really connected was you know that thing of having to go and score dope and you like you'd have to go around to your local hippie and then you'd have to do the thing you know that was yeah it was. It was the law. You'd buy, buy your dope and you'd have to sit down and skin one up and yes. smoke it with it. This which is I, true. I just wanted to just go and leave, but you know, you just couldn't do that. So hence you'd set, you'd end up sitting there and you were a kind of sitting duck really for these hippies. And they yeah, you were, you were joining a cult, really, weren't you? Yeah, you, well, they get you stoned and then they put on Hawkwind and change your life, you know. <laughs> so um, that's kind of what happened, really. And talk um, about Carlos Costaneda. You know, I'm not this shit. It's like, and then <laughs> then sort of 20 minutes later, oh my God, this is really good. Um, <laughs> so that really changed, changed my world, really, um, and got into sort of other stuff through that. Yeah. And then that's sort of how that's that's how I heard here and the here and now band, you know, here and now. Here and, and now. Yeah, well, Keith, that's how I Keith the bass. I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit, but that's how um, I heard um, Planet Gone, Planet right. Anarchy, uh, that album, and um, at one of these guys' places, you know, um, and. Um, what happened quite quickly after that, I was, you know, because I was living in the West London suburbs still at that point. And um, I then saw a poster for the Here and Now band with the OM sign locally. And I just thought, well, this can't be the same band. You know, that's ridiculous. And they were playing at Chiswick Town Hall. And it was like, I thought it must be a different band. I just couldn't connect that they, this band would be <laughs> playing in Chiswick. Um, so anyway, I got a bunch of us, a bunch of my friends together, and we went down to see them. Yes. And um, we were the only, we were the only punks there, and we we literally walked into this room that's in Chiswick Town Hall, and everyone was sitting on the floor. It was incense, and they were sitting on the floor, and I, I seem to remember someone actually drinking tea, sitting on the floor. It was just, it was such a culture shock. It's like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah, we used to go and see Killing Joke and the Damned and things, you know, and um, it was just so different. So we stood at the front, and when the when the band came on, we started jumping around and dancing and the band just thought this was amazing. And the audience hated us. They were shouting, shouting sit down from behind us, you know. <laughs> so we ended up becoming very friendly with the band because they just thought it was brilliant. Some people who'd come along who were actually into it and dancing rather than just chatting and drinking tea sort of thing with them yeah. playing in the background. So they loved us. So we ended up getting friendly with them. And that's how um, our band got to... to basically here now um shanghai us really um said jump in the back of our van and we went on tour with them with our little band that we were just starting Blimey. which is amazing and that so happened quite quickly. had you finished art school because normally it's the one year foundation then three year degree did you bother with that no or? i did a two-year foundation and and that was brilliant but what it meant was um when i i, I, I did go on to try and do a degree but it, it 
we, we uh, it was a Harrow Art College, which at the time it was it was a it was doing illustration, and I'm kind of glad I didn't do it really because um, obviously computers came in and illustrators you know didn't really get much <laughs> of a chance after that, but this was all we didn't know that at the time. But um, because we'd all about four of the people from Richmond had got um, had got places on this course. And uh, we were all bored because we, we'd had two years, basically the first year I left because we were just bored because they were doing all stuff that we already knew. Yes. And um, also I'd, I'd got the band together by then and my first band, Panic Sphere. Is this and, Ring? No, it's pre-Ring. It's like Pan Panic Sphere, they were called. And it's a three-piece band. And um, we, uh, I was doing that and doing nuts, and I just left because it was boring, and um, we wanted to concentrate on doing that. And that's that's the same time when we met here and now, and kind of all that stuff, and did this tour. But the other thing that happened is oh, I'm going to see here and now is how I how I saw Cardiacs for the first time. Right, and that would have been that's either 1983 or 84. I can't really remember. Um, it's around that time. And that's when we'd, we'd already, I think we might have already been, I can't remember if we'd already been on tour here and now by then. We'd definitely done some shows of them or something. But um, I went to see them at the Ace in Brixton. As I say, it was either late 83 or early 84. And, um, and Cardiacs was supporting them. And um, we just saw this band that was just sort of, and it kind of was, to the few people I went with, there was three of us, it was just, it just blew our minds. And um, that started another whole thing that sort of still exists today, really. <laughs> as a, as a, a world, you know. a whole but yeah, that was back then. So, yeah. There you go. Because it's kind of an interesting time, that early 80s, because, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in, there's the sort of huge amounts of unemployment. And then yeah. a lot of bands I've interviewed, you know, were either on Job Seekers Allowance or Enterprise Allowance Schemes or just claiming the dog. Because it was kind of, the government were like, oh, could you just go on something else and then we can massage the, the figures a bit. But then also you had the, during that period, the, the sort of the travelling convoy or the peace convoy as they became yeah, known yeah. which was kind of you know people suddenly jumping in buses and getting on the road to go to lots of festivals like Stonehenge but there used to be because I'm from East Anglia so there was like the Barsham Fair and Albion Fairs, Rough and yeah. Fairs, all those kind of Amazing. things that, that used to happen um, and that sort of drifted into the 80s before things all got a bit more messy and messier until they kind of stopped in the sort of late mid to late 80s but then you were obviously part of that that scene because you were in well here and now were definitely one of those bands who were this on the festival yeah. circuit well I, when I was 16 I was I did a fanzine for a while I just yeah all the the chronology of this is really difficult to remember but I remember um I did a thing on the band called The Mob you know it's a narco-punk band oh yes and um I think I got in touch with them we, everyone used to write to each other back then it was really wonderful. You'd write something and then sort of a week later something would arrive and you get a letter from one of these bands and stuff. And I, was, I used to do a lot of that, correspondence. Um, it started out through doing a fanzine when, when I was about 14, 15. Um, and the mob, I think it was the mob. I'm pretty sure it was them. Yeah, they wrote and said, look, we're, what, it's the, you know, we're going to Stonehenge Festival. Come down, you know, you can stay with us. And um, I didn't know what it was right then. But, and I didn't go that year. Um, but I went the next year and um, yeah, that was a, that was an eye opener. Yeah, so I'd imagine the hinge. Yeah, I think I think the year I, I went two years, but the last year was 
you know, then it, it got stopped. And um, yeah, in a really horrible way. But yeah, the, the, the first time I went, we just went for the sort of solstice weekend. And then the next time we went, we took a big tent and a PA and went for a, went for a whole month. Right. Stayed there, yeah, for the whole month. It was great. And now we had our, our own, yeah, we had our own little kind of old sort of army tent and, and we got a PA and a generator and all that kind of stuff. And we just used to play every day, you know, and, and just invite other people to come and jam with us and stuff. Wow. And it was great. Yeah, yeah, it was really good fun. God, that's a, that's a moment, isn't it? I know there's nothing like playing live, is there, and jamming. Um, yes, it does kind of get bands kind of kick them in the shape, so to speak. So were you starting to, at that stage, um, yes, when did Ring then sort of form? Well, um, we, used to go when, um, we used to go and see Panic City, my band, um, us lot and some friends of mine. You know, we were sort of the first people to go to cardiac gigs really because I mean when I first saw them after that first time when they were supporting um here and now I went to their next next few gigs and they were playing these little pubs on their own you know but doing the whole show it was amazing but you know we were the only sort of people that used to go there was sort of a handful of us and um I remember going I, mean, I don't know we basically but that's how I met the people from Ring at a cardiac ski we ended up getting talking and they had this band and we they they had a they'd made a a cassette they'd actually done a kind of four track recording um which but you know it sounds stupid now but back then that was really hard to do you know you, you know to get to be able to make a, a multi-track recording was really difficult um and they'd done this down they gave us this tape that was kind of well they, they had they, they gave us a demo and then it was it seemed like weeks later they gave us this album and it was like how the hell did you do that that's and i heard it and it just sounded amazing and they were really really together and on it and so we ended up playing gigs with them um so we were friends really um the whole ring lot and then they had a big reshuffle um because uh, i think their drummer went and lived went to india or something and you know things change and um We'd been playing with them, and and we basically ended up joining them. Right. With Panic Sphere, so we just dropped Panic Sphere, and we all got together, and um, and did a and we we did a load of shows, and then we did um, we were doing gigs, and and did another recording, uh, did a whole album, wrote an album, um, which I was involved with them and the drummer from Panic Sphere, who used to I write, I used to write with. Yeah. So did you, was this the album which is called D, D Dum Dum? OD Dum Dum was the one that they handed me. That was right. done on a, a, a four track. Um, so that was before we joined. They did, did that. Um, then when, um, when me and um, Adrian joined, we uh, sort of embarked on a whole new record and that was called, that came out, it was called Nervous Recreation. Right, there you go. And that was that was a whole us all learning about recording and stuff like that. And that was done on an on an eight track, you know, which was kind of really big deal, you know, quarter inch eight track. Yeah, and uh, that was like kind of going up in the world. But you know, back then that was a big deal. Um, so we we're still teenagers, really. I think I must have been about eighteen or nineteen, um, something like that. It and was, at that stage, were you looking at music as a sort of um, as a long term? 
recreation that's almost a because well because because i suppose with the 80s it's kind of interesting in the sense that you know at that stage i think a lot of bands just thought well there is no sort of plan b we'll just sort of do music and there was there was the gatekeepers i mean obviously you were talking about fanzines and there was the cassette culture and flexidus but but also what i sort of realized is that you know we had those three weekly music papers it was like people like John Peel and obviously Janice Long, Kid Jensen. So there was I don't, I don't think good the access. Sorry, the, but sorry to interrupt, but you know, the, the influence of John Peel can't be underestimated. I mean, all of us when we were teenagers, when we were kids at school, that's what you did. You stayed, you know, you went, went went to bed and had your radio on really quietly and, and listened to his show every night. And that that was the kind of lifeline of hearing new music and hearing current music. Yes. And um, that, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I remember when The Cure brought out, you know, Three Imaginary Boys, he sort of played that, you know, extracts from that every night, you know. And, um, you know, everything was so much more mysterious then. You didn't know who these people were, who these bands were, where they were coming from. You know, when I went and bought Three Imaginary Boys, there's no information about the band. It was just a picture of, a, you know, a Hoover and a kind of fridge <laughs> and a lampshade on it. And it's like, and then you looked inside, it was just, it was just all... It was amazing. So everything was, you lived in this sort of mysterious realm and obviously, you know, the you're picking up these signals on the radio that are just feeding you all this kind of interesting stuff that's actually current and happening. Mm. And it was very interesting. And so, I mean, the idea of, I mean, no one was thinking about careers. I mean, you just, you know, that was the worst thing about being at school. That's all they talked about, that crap. And so this thing about music was, you know, once you got that in your blood, it was just what you did, you know, and you just made time to do that. And we somehow always got by with that. But no, there wasn't. We just wanted to do that all the time and sort of um, and make, make things happen. Make yes. Things happen. All about that, because you, you had to do it for yourself. There's no one who's going to do it for you. But and that's why the free possible scene was so great. And then that obviously moved into London. Um, and, you know, in the winter, there was all these, you know, Club Dog started up and they did that thing up at Seven Sisters at the, what was the pub called? Oh, someone will remember, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, the George Roby, is it? And um, all these kind of like, you know, where, where in a pub you turn a pub into sort of some sort of weird sort of post-apocalyptic wonderland and all these bands were playing different little areas and, you know, you have these sort of well, you know basically a winter festival inside a little pub yes. in North London. and it was really exciting and interesting and a really eclectic kind of bills and you know this is because this is before you know Britpop or any of that kind of stuff so if you know if you you know stepping a bit further forward you know when we used to go up to Camden and and watch you know later on in the sort of later 80s 90s you know you'd go to bills with these bands in these pubs and it would just be, they'd be, all be different, you know. You wouldn't, there wouldn't be any kind of theme. And that was really exciting and that, that, that all kind of went away and everything got compartmentalised and ordered, you know. Yes, well, I was quite, I've sort of been quite amazed how many different scenes and tribes there were in the 80s, you know, having done this show for quite a few years and then sort of learning more bits that I'd completely missed and sort of clubs that I'd completely missed, like Alice in Wonderlands and Alice in Wonderland, and then sort of realising there there wasn't just kind of goths and new romantics and psychobilly, you know, there was all these other, yeah. other subgroups as well. And well, more I think the, you know. the sub, that is all the squat scene. And, it, it, you know, there was the ambulance station down on the old Kent Road and there was kind of, 
Dickie Dirts, and there's all these sort of, and there was the place in Bonington Square, you know, up in Vauxhall, where they just sort of squatted this house and they took the, the ground, they took the first floor out on the ground floor and just had a balcony and put yeah. a stage. And it was amazing. People used to just turn up there and wait for a slot, you know, and you just get up and haul your amp on and play, and there's always people there. And that was really great because, you know, you, I think for all of us, this is where you cut your teeth doing shows and really sort of learn it. Because, you know, it, it was, you know, you, sometimes, you know, you weren't necessarily, you know, treated very well. <laughs> As in, like, you know, if they didn't like you, they'd shout at you. And I think that's, you know, it was good. Yeah. It's good. Well, it was interesting. And then it got, yeah. I was going to say this kind of interesting because, you know, I, I don't know if you watched that Beatles documentary, Let It Be All Eight Hours, but it was, you know, it's kind of the, the history of the Beatles playing in Hamburg, playing two, three nights a week, you know, oh, for right. years. And so they sort of built up this amazing ability to know how to play live as a band and cope with just about anything and, you know, and just develop their, their sort of the teamwork between the two, uh, the four of them, which was quite, it comes over in the film, really, Let It Be. So, um, and also I know yeah. that recently I did an interview with J.J. Fox. J.J. Fox, J.J. No, French. I think he was the guitarist with Twisted Sister, who I didn't like, but um, they spent 10 years just gigging every night, if not two, three times a night, just until they got a record label, a uh, record deal in the early 80s. But they started in 72. So he must have played thousands of gigs. And eventually it's like, God, someone likes us. This is great. But yeah, I mean, you know, he, you know, he often talks about how important that was to to know how to deal with it just about any situation that was going to come your way later. There's no point in thinking, oh, I've been in the band for six weeks, it hasn't happened, I'll give up. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's not going to sort of sort you out for later in life, really, or give you the tool. The, the thing about that, I mean, yeah, that's really true, but this was more like actually learning how to play. I mean, we, just, we didn't even know how to play or what we were doing. So, I mean, we were probably really terrible. <laughs> you know, that, that's the only chance you got and that's what we wanted to do so you just have to go to these places and just find out and you know it 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 was um it was brilliant and also you know just you know carry your own stuff do it you know it's not like we were, were kind of we had any any backup <laughs> no, mm. it's it good though it was great and it was great, it was great fun but you know playing these cold windy sort of places you know <laughs> broken windows but you met really interesting people and you know and really passionate people really passionate about music yes doing their own thing completely absolutely lots of stuff that's just so out there and it was great it was really enjoyable well it's interesting and, you know, I, I would have carried on doing that really I mean I wasn't looking for anything but you know I'd, I'd sort of seem to just bump into people that led me off in different directions. I mean, I've always said yes to things. So, yes. Um, especially if it looked really interesting, you know. But it's interesting <laughs> that people like Alan McGee sort of cut his teeth in, in the sort of the club, which was the living room just above a pub, wasn't it? I and mean, it literally was like it, the, size, I don't know about that, yeah. the size of a living room upstairs. But that was where it all started for him, you know, when putting out seven inch singles. And, you know, he kept going with it. And, you know, obviously, had lots of bands and lots of disappointments and eventually you know things kept happening until Oasis which you know I wasn't that much of a fan but it was kind of an interesting story and also like you mentioned the ambulance station is quite famous now because that's where I think Jesus and the Mary Chain played their first gig in London wasn't it and there was a band there called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter that was members of that band used to sort of hang out there 
and just yeah. recently had a compilation of all their singles put together on Optic Nerve Records, which was quite interesting. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, you know, people have been getting photographs and posters of that kind of famous venue. So, um, so what happened with Ring and how did you manage to find yourself at Glastonbury on the, the Travellers Field? Well, we, I mean, well, I bought an ambulance with with. Um, oh, brilliant! You bought an ambulance. This with is a friend, great. With a friend, well, with Zag from from um, Ring, we we clubbed together and bought an ambulance and went travelling, and um, through doing that, um, we went around France doing kind of all sorts of stuff, um, and uh, just going to these festivals um and sort of you know obviously yeah, just 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 you know having an adventure really but we um having the ambulance meant we we could um sort of make some money at Glastonbury <laughs> I mean basically after Stonehenge finished um that year the year after Stonehenge well the year Stonehenge didn't happen all the people that you would have gone to Stonehenge went to Glastonbury so and we did as well and we drove down there with a whole bunch of people and we set up sort of selling veggie burgers and kind of and uh brandy coffees to sort of finance our festival yeah but we went there and we, we just took all our stuff and um i think we went around hassling people for a gig but i know we, we had some friends there so like I, i'm pretty sure it was bob dog but i might be wrong about that who said come and play at this on this stage whatever um and so we, we and we played we just played that year there, well, we were there anyway. We we just gone down for a whole month, sort of again, and we were just you know hanging out there doing our own thing, um, and we did a lot of that around that time. I don't know what year that was. This is again the eighties still. Yes, um, but but we went. There was we basically you do these festivals. You go to these festivals, and then there'd be a kind of rumor where the next one was happening, and you know someone had got like there was a, a abandoned airfield somewhere. We ended up at one point. Um, on that and you know the, that's how we got to you know the mutoids and all that kind of lot because they were very active doing that and and finding alternative sites near where other festivals were happening and just sort of squatting them and setting up their own setting up our stages and 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 you know just putting just doing your own thing yeah that. that's we had a, a while of doing that yeah uh, very exciting yes i know 87 i'll never forget it my my first glastonbury you don't do you really it's uh, <laughs> it becomes a kind of religious experience for quite a few years and well, i enjoy we... i think i enjoyed stonehenge more it uh, stonehenge was much more extreme much more out there um but the, the, the first glastonbury was fun but it was you know there's all big bands playing on on the stages and you know is it kind of it was a different thing but i mean i don't think we ever went anywhere near the main stage ever when we were there it was quite awkward so what happens to the end of your time with ring do you just kind of go and form another band uh, just trying to remember <laughs> well I, I i i left ring i can't remember how it all ended that they, they carried on they were still doing stuff for a while but um I got asked, I got, I was started playing in, that's right, I was playing in, um, well, I started playing with Cardiacs, and, but at the same time, I was also was playing with this, uh, I met these people from up Campbell Grove, you know, the um, Terry and stuff, um, 
but it was uh sorry i'm just thinking about how this all hooks together because i can't really remember but i i was playing bass for a guy called dave howard a canadian guy right howard. and he used to play an old ace tone organ on top of a wheelchair and push it all around the stage he was really good and he sort of sang he sort of had this amazing voice i don't know if you know him but so that was so I was, I was playing with them and then tim asked me to join cardiacs and um so I was just really busy doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, at one point I was in about three bands. So <laughs> I can't remember what the other one was. But um, yeah, I mean, it was really busy time and there were all these different things going on with very different people all exploring their own thing. You know, the whole squat scene up in Camberwell became a whole thing. That's where the House of Love were. And I didn't know who they were, but I bumped into Terry by accident. Um, right. Uh, through um, a friend of mine and he just got kicked out of the house of love. This is, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, he, he this is right towards the end of the 90s, to, towards the end of the 80s. Um, and I was doing, I was playing in Cardiacs, but I bumped into, I, I met Terry. I'd actually met him before once with Dave in the Camberwell Grove. He'd walked in one time and wrote a check on the bar and gave it to Dave to pay for rehearsals. And I'd never seen anyone do anything like that. I'd never seen any musician give any other musician some money. <laughs> <laughs> and let alone have a checkbook. It was kind of quite profound. And like, who's that guy? And, um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know who the House of Love were. And of course, at that point, they were kind of, you know, quite big. Yeah, um, they had Shine On, didn't they? They had the big single. Yeah, and all that. And um, But I met him again, and that was just after he'd been kicked out or left whichever way you look at it the house of love and he had um he basically um had some money to do some recording down at blackwing in southwark and um he asked me to come down there because he he knew that i played bass for dave howard and he was looking for a bass player and i'm, I'm not really a bass player <laughs> but um uh, he quickly discovered i was a guitar player so um yeah, I mean, he set up these sessions down at Blackwing and people were wandering in and out. It was like loads of people. And Terry was just sort of pushing them into a room going, here's, here's this song we've been doing, you know, put something on that and then he'd disappear again. And that's how, that's how I went into my first 24-track studio. I'd never been in one before. I just walked in and got left in there with the engineer who got bored and left me there and just pushed the remote towards me and said, look, you just press this button and press this button. And then when you, when you want to rewind it, you press that and then you start again. And he just left me. And I sat there with my bass and just sort of recorded on this thing in this huge studio. And it was just like, this is amazing. So I went back for more of that and ended up, you know, we ended up starting a band. I mean, there was no band at that point, but we ended up starting a band. Is this Levitation? People. Yeah. Right. All the people who, who, all the people who sort of stuck around, pretty much, um, you know, ended up being in the band, and um, yeah, that's a whole other story. But that oh was sort of, that's yeah. quite. But that they become sort of, a, you become a major player then, don't you? Because you get a, a record deal, the whole caboodle. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we got a deal. I mean, that's. I mean, Levitation is the reason why I left Cardiacs. Yes. Not because I wanted to leave Cardiacs because I really loved it and you know, I loved the music, loved the people and really enjoyed doing we doing the shows. The shows are just amazing. But you know, being in Cardiacs is, you know, it's Tim's vision, Tim's music. He writes it, you play it, and that's great. And I, I I would have happily done that, but we had a chance we were doing our own stuff. 
um, with levitation, we started rehearsing and it just started to happen really fast. Mm. Like, there was sort of amazing chemistry. So we just started playing, when we, we'd all just play together and so we just write songs very fast in a room playing loud and um which was how I started in the first place back with Panic Sphere days that's I didn't know how to write songs so what I've always done is sort of get in a room with some people and just play and see what comes out and then sort of oh you know Frankenstein things together until you get something that you think is is interesting and we did that with that's exactly what we did the levitation were at, at the beginning and you know it really it really worked it's interesting and uh, we got offered a deal yeah, I was just going to say, it's just interesting seeing the Beatles who've been together 10 years doing Let It Be and turning up with nothing and having to sort of get an album together pretty quickly. And the way they just created a song exactly the same, where they'd just be jamming and making any lyrics just to go with the melody to sort of go, right, we'll, we'll think about yeah. that later, but let's just keep going, keep going. You know, let's listen to it back and now let's keep working on it. And it was a, there was a brilliant bit when Glenn John who was the producer said should we work on that song you've been doing the one about the long long road and you're thinking oh my god they just literally it was like that it was like oh okay we'll go back and you think, that's one of the greatest not you know one of the most memorable songs in history isn't it, in popular music and you know it's just that oh yeah okay we'll go back and have a go with that one again so it's interesting that chemistry that you had with levitation was exactly the same with the beatles really trying to think okay we've got two more days we better get something else done you know, well, I wouldn't equate us to the Beatles, but you know, I get, I get, I see what, I see what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it was in. Well, it was. Well, just go. I know. I was. I became obsessed with that film for a bit, and uh, it was just interesting where they went on the roof to do that live recording, and then they would like be a little bit going up, going. This is what. This was the track that they put on the album, and you think, oh bloody hell, you just did the about three or four of those tracks on the roof were the ones that ended up on the album. It was just. You know, it shows how good they were on a freezing cold January day that they managed to do, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the Beatles. I mean, guys, it's the Beatles anyway. So with, with that period, it was kind of interesting because the late 80s, there'd been that kind of North London squat scene of like Silverfish, the Faith Healers, you know, Shoe Gazing, My Bloody Valentine. There was a real noise grunge vibe going on, wasn't there, at that point? Yeah. Were you also kind of part of that world of... Um, interesting only in as much as we played the same venues and stuff but no no I mean we've always been I mean I've always been in bands that are set apart from anything else I mean not not by design it's just the way it worked out I mean we've never been in the right place doing the right thing ever yeah um but um yeah but I mean you know obviously Camden I mean you just to play in Camden because we all lived in London and um that's where all the venues were so yeah there was there was all these other bands that lived there or whatever and was doing all that kind of stuff you know yeah silverfish were kind of <laughs> the quintessential camden band and they're lovely and they're great fun you know our yes. bass player lawrence used to live with leslie right um, but they, they shared a uh a house up in uh, uh frognall what's it called anyway yeah up there <laughs> chalk farm chalk farm yes yeah, so but, then, there was a so was there a bidding war for levitation because at that stage it was kind of interesting you know there had been like i'd mentioned i suppose there'd been the madchester the dance scene with people like the orb and then there'd been my bloody valentine coming through and then you had sort of the seattle grunge scene but then there was this other world of people like ride and I suppose a side of a psychedelic rock kind of vibe going on, which must have been where you guys kind of fitted in, really. 
Yeah, you've got to remember this is all pre-Britpop, so yes. yeah, there was lots of different things going on. But yeah, there were bands like, um, I mean, no, there was no bidding war or anything for us. I mean, we we basically got management and they, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I was 26, 27. I didn't know what a record deal was. I'd never been interested or knew anything about it, really, because I'd just come from a completely, you know, naive, sort of I just want to play play my guitar sort of background and suddenly it was all kind of and I said well what does this mean and it's like well you're going to get paid to do what you want to do and it's like okay where do I sign I mean I was <laughs> green I didn't really care and I, well, I remember actually someone said you should you know you should get a lawyer to see see the deal and um I had a girlfriend at the time whose father was a lawyer so I showed it to him and he just said I wouldn't sign this so this is you know no way and I went I'm gonna do it <laughs> right. because but I didn't you know, I mean what you got to realize is back then I mean no one was thinking of the future yeah. you're just thinking of kind of what's right in front of you and you're also really full of life really passionate about it and you you know really we all worked really hard at what we did and I don't you know but you know as you mentioned we were all on the dole or whatever and this was like kind of when are you going to get money and you can do this and you can get into studios and record this music and I mean I, I don't think if you know if I'd been offered something like that just out of the blue when I didn't have a band like Levitation you know I wasn't in a band like Levitation you know because we could I could see all the, you know we could all see the potential in it yeah. and the fact that someone else comes in and sees the potential in it and says look we can get you money to do this you just go yeah <laughs> what else are you going to do Oh no, I don't think I should do that because you know the contract doesn't look so good. I mean, no, no musician who's young and wants to do that are not. They're not going to do that. You know, you're not going to shelve it until you get the right deal because what's in front of you is what what you've got to do. Yes. So were you on Ultimate Records first, and then you went to Rough Trade? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but we also had um, we signed we signed an American deal. We signed a Capital in America, and that's what was funding things. Right. So we yeah. had a major, major, and then two. Yeah, basically. But that was the that was the management strategy. It seemed to work. You know, when we went out to America, did did that? I mean, that's basically our lives kind of changed overnight, really. And we were able to concentrate completely on doing music and get all our friends together and go and have an adventure, which is exactly what we wanted to do. Yes, and, and you know, did... we got to go to America, and it was just like well, you know, I couldn't believe this is happening. So basically, we said, well, you know, we've got to take our crew, and they were going, no, you've got to have American crew, and we just put our foot down and said, well, we won't go unless we can take our crew. And at that point, it was you know Tim Smith and Matthew Cutts were our crew, and Dominic, and we all we just said, you know, we can't go without them. So we all went and just had this event because we just wanted all wanted to be together because we all that, we all used to hang out together anyway. Yes, and it was let's go and have a load of fun, which we did. Yes, but yeah, well, I... we were, we're not. We weren't very professional, as in thinking about professional careers or anything like that. We were just more into the the, the um, yeah, the adventure of it all, really. Yeah, and so you did. Had you done the first album, which was not for Need for Not? Need for Not. Yeah, we did. We were doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, we did. We did. Uh, we did a few EPs. Then we did that record. And um, we did that with Tim, and um, Tim producing, and um, we, uh, yeah, through all that, that was all financed. So we we got to to obviously a lot, 
um, you know, I mean, I hadn't realized, you know, as, as I say, I was so good. I didn't realize that touring was promoting. It's like, <laughs> well, well, that's going on holiday. We, that's what we want to do, tour and play and get people in a room and, you know, uh, have a happening. You know, that's basically, <laughs> that's what we lived for. And it was like, oh, yeah. And then it started to be, be called promoting. And it was just like, oh, I don't want to think about that, you know. But um, <laughs> that, that's how we got to go to America and all the rest of it and have adventures. And it was, it was fantastic, really. And um, we had a lot of fun. And how did you, because um, you were on several tours with several, you know, tours with bands like Transvision, Famp and The Fall. Did you, um, did they not work out quite so well because you got kicked off? <laughs> We never toured with Transvision Vamp. We were supposed to do a show with them, but they apparently didn't want to play with us. Um, and someone from the media said something that was probably all made up, but the, that they were too scared to play with us. Um, but I don't know if that's true. I mean, it was just some stupid story. Right. But the game never happened. We didn't play with them. But, but no, we did do a tour with The Fall, but Marky Smith asked us all out for a fight during a sound check. Um, and punched his own sound engineer. And that was the end of that. And we got thrown off the tour. And, <laughs> and uh, I think his, his, that night or the next day, his, um, his tour manager quit. Because it was, it was just crazy. I mean, it's like, you know, everything I tell you about Marky Smith is true. Right. But the, the four were great. I mean, they were, they were great. I mean, I, I, you know, I quite liked the four, but he was, he was a pretty difficult person. Pretty kind of um, erratic, let's say. Um, and he, he, he didn't like us being on his tour, so he basically kicked us off. Yes, that's interesting. So when you went to work on your second album, which was Meanwhile Gardens, what was the atmosphere yeah. like of the band at that stage? Oh, amazing. We were basically, we were, we were writing so much. I mean, we got into this thing. We basically had our own, we, we rented a studio where we could have all our gear set up all the time. So we were writing all the time. And then people, different factions in the band started writing, but it was all still working at that point. Amazingly, we had like, we had so much material. We started recording this album and we, instead, instead of finishing stuff, we were just recording more and more songs because we were really excited and we had all these songs. And um, we basically had about, well, we had two albums worth of songs and we wanted to do two records in one year and that's what we wanted to do and of course we didn't know that you're not allowed to do that you're not supposed to do that you're contracted for one and then you have to promote that and then you do the next one and then you get on this like kind of factory line yes and we were like fuck that we're going to do two and of course <laughs> we ran out of money <laughs> to record because we hadn't you know we were basically sort of just doing all these backing tracks and building these songs up and uh, so we were telling our managers to go and get more money so that we could finish both these. And we wanted to do a, a spring album and an autumn album. Nice. Um, and do these, all these different sets and all the rest of it. And that's when, well, there was other reasons, but that's when people started to realise we were a bit of a handful. Um, and um, we couldn't get the, the money to finish it. So we basically... Um, well, the other thing we ran into is like we were writing longer and longer songs and more kind of um, intricate kind of stuff. And what really happened, what we're really talking about here is the, the advent of Britpop, which basically changed the landscape. And after Blur got signed, who 
we all we used to play them. We did our first show with Blur. Yes. Um, live show with with them up at the powerhouse in in Islington. I mean, and they were you know they were friends of ours. But and you know I really liked their music and have always followed what what they've all done. But there was a paradigm shift because bands like us and Mint Four Hundred and um, you know a few other bands. Well, I suppose the Verve at that point were were sort of in the same sort of bracket and spiritualized. You know, we were all we that's what we were about to do. We were about to go to America with all of them yeah. and do a package thing. But um, when it all went wrong, but um. The point I'm getting at is suddenly we had a, our American A&R man fly over when we were recording all this stuff saying, what the hell are you doing? So we were, we're, writing, we're writing two albums. <laughs> I thought you'd be pleased, you know, no, you're not. And then they heard what we were doing and it's like, where's the singles? And we were like, what do you mean? Like, you know, we're Levitation, we don't write singles, you know, we've never have done. You signed us saying, that's what was so brilliant about us. Like, yeah, well, it's all changed now, you need singles. It's like, well, we haven't got any. And they went right, and they they basically pulled the plug on it all, and um, that's the sort of preceed version. So it all kind of went a bit <laughs> a bit wrong. Um, so consequently, that album never came out. I mean, the the other thing about it was, it, I mean, Terry left as well during the right. show, um, which was kind of interesting. Did you um, know? So was, we, was he doing a Ziggy Stardust? Did you did you have an idea that no. he was going to? No, no, he was just. He was basically seeing, he could see what, what was happening. And he, um, he'd had a daughter and, um, you know, that was, that was more pressing. Um, and the idea of going away and doing all this and, and keeping it together, he, he, he could see the writing on the wall with it all really. Mm. And um, he made a swift exit and put his attention onto what was more important for him. Which, it's totally understandable. What was the atmosphere like when you went backstage and went, that was a surprise. Did you, you know, did you, did you, did you have a conversation? Well, the atmosphere was pretty bad, yeah. It was pretty, pretty bad, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, well, it was, it was terrible. I mean, it was, we were about to play with The Cure at Finsbury Park and then we were about to go to America and do a tour with Spiritualized, The Verve, uh, Mercury Rev and us, all mm. on a kind of semi-equal billing in, in the States. So we were about to, you know, it was about to kind of, and, and our record was going to come out, you know, it was, the Meanwhile Gardens was about to come out, the first instalment, <laughs> and um, in over here and in America. But um, yeah, that put pay to all that. My God. So it all, just, it all just kind of stopped very quickly. Yes. And we lived on for a little bit, but basically it, it was over. And so, so Meanwhile Garden didn't come out for another 20 years. Blimey, did it feel strange when you listened to the album 20 years later thinking, oh, it's all right? No, because, I mean, it had always been there. Um, we'd always heard it. And, I mean, I've always been really proud of everything we did and always loved the music. And I think we all did. So, I mean, it was, you know, the music stands for itself, you know. I mean, it's, it's great and we all love it. Um, you know, you've got your niggles about things, but all bands have about their kind of... I would imagine it's, so. It's never perfect, but it's, I, I really love it. And I think it's got some of the best stuff we ever wrote on it. Yeah. Um, that came out in, well, a few years ago now. So we actually, it took 20 years to get it out and get everyone on the same page and, you know, and kind of healed enough to sort of deal with it, really. But it was, that was everyone trying to pull together because, it you know, the music needed to come out. 
and it yeah. did, and that's great. But I mean, obviously, you know, if it had come out then, our lives would have been very different. Yeah. But uh, what cost? I have no idea. But there would have been a big cost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tortured time, isn't it? So how did you then work? Because because bizarrely, you know, um, the album you did with Julianne Reagan, Mice. I, I remember that coming out because because at the time this was like '96. I, I remember sort of I don't know who the PR people were at that. You know, but she was on permanent records, wasn't it? It was on permanent records. I, I remember getting yeah. a review copy and then doing this interview with her, which was, I haven't got a recording of it, but I do remember her saying that after All About Eve had finished, you know, suddenly realising that she too didn't have any money. And I always remember her saying that she had to, I don't know, get a cleaning job in the studio, which was sort of kind of boggling, really, thinking, what? You were one minute playing at the Royal Albert Hall or some massive venue, and then, you you know, the band finishes and you suddenly have to get... A cleaning job and I'm pretty sure that's from memory even though that was 1996 so um yes life in a band is kind of difficult isn't it yeah yeah it is but that's your choice <laughs> <laughs> yes that's true so how did that then develop from from levitation to mice oh the mice thing was I mean that was literally that was really quick that was only we only did a, I did a couple of shows actually I might have only done one show with with them I remember we played the Water Rats, but no, it was I bumped into her in this pub, um, and uh, she was doing this record and needed guitarist, as I said earlier. And I ended up coming in and writing a lot of stuff and playing on it, and then actually doing quite a lot of production work on it with the engineer there. But what? And we finished the record, um, and then um, this weird thing happened. She basically decided she you know, she loved it all and it was all ready to go and then her and the person who'd written the songs a guy called Tim McTie had some meeting and then they got me in saying they 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 freaked out about it in some way I don't know what about this, how it sounded and all the stuff um that I'd done on it and they wanted to go back to how it was before so I'd invested quite a lot of time doing this stuff which they'd all loved and then they decided when it was going to come out they didn't so the album that actually came out was nothing like the album that we'd done which right. was great um but that was after we did a show we did the album was slated to come out and we did a show and um i got dominic luckman from cardiacs in a drum for us and um it's brilliant we did our first rehearsal and he <laughs> we just come out of the studio and we didn't know how to play this song so even though we'd been listening to them for ages and he came to the first re rehearsal and just knew them all because he'd just done all his homework and he was teaching us how they went it was brilliant we did one show at the water rats which was just absolutely rammed and it went down really well and um we we didn't have management so we were doing it all ourselves just sort of went out and <laughs> left the venue with loads of cash it was just like this is great this is really good fun why can't we do this every day um uh, it was great, but um, no, but then she had this kind of wobble about the whole thing and um, and just said, and I just went, oh, God, yeah, I don't know, it was just one of those terrible moments. It's like, well, hang on, we've done all this work, we've got it all together, it's really great, everyone loves it, but you want to pull it. So she pulled it and they went back and redid it all or did redid bits of it. They kept some of the stuff yes. and put it together that was sort of a bit half-hearted, I thought. But I mean, I still, I mean, I actually heard from her the other day. I'm still in touch with her um, every now and then. 
Yes. But that, yeah, but as I say, that, that was over very quickly. And, and had you worked with Heather Nova before that, or was there a Heather Nova? No, no, that was, that was something, I've got a feeling that was Dave got me into that, Dave Francolini. He, I got a call. I got a call from Felix, which was her fiance at the time. I think they got married. And he was the producer and he produced her stuff and he got in touch with me because um, he said, come, do you know any of this stuff? And I went, no, he said, there's an audition. Can you come along? And um, I just went along because I, I wasn't doing anything really at the time. I was writing my own stuff. I was putting yeah. my own stuff, microcosmos stuff. And, but they, they, they needed to, and they, they said, look, we need to go to Canada next week. And we're running these auditions and it's just a nightmare. It's just terrible. Can you come down and, and meet Heather and just see if you get on? So I went down there and I didn't even have a guitar. It turned out, and it was actually auditions of the people queuing around the block. It was just absolutely weird. And I didn't know who she was or what anything was. But this guy, Felix, was really lovely and sweet. And I met them all. And they sort of went into this rehearsal room and I just picked up guitar they had there. And they said, can you just, just, play this up you know just let's just start playing mm. and um stayed there for about half an hour and they said do you want to come to Canada next week I went yeah all right so off we went we did a tour of Canada from Nova Scotia to Vancouver it was amazing Fantastic. and then we did yeah and we did um well we went to Japan um it was great yeah we did a, a proper tour of Japan actually as well we played places that you know all over the place and um and that was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. It was good, good fun people. And um, it was laugh. And we did a, we did a show at Lorelei Laure where David Bowie and Iggy Pop were playing. And um, I got, got to see David Bowie soundcheck. That was pretty strange in this beautiful amphitheater. And um, it was just five, it was just the band. We were just sitting in this amphitheater on a sunny day. <laughs> onto the stage and went we do heroes and we just sat there looking at each other going what the fuck there was five of us there and some texts that's it and we're just watching Bowie and his band playing heroes it's like oh my god I can't believe this is happening god that's nice yeah. that was so we, we that was that was good fun in that head and loads of but that basically yeah I did a, a tour of, of the, the album I can't remember the album she was doing but yeah it was great actually and then um yeah and then that ended and that's when that's about the time we started getting Dark Star together, I think. Dark Star, was that named after the Grateful Dead song? No. Fair enough. No, it's actually more to do with um, the film, I think, really. Oh, the John Carpenter <laughs> film. That's right, yeah. God, the talking bomb. God, that was a great yeah, film. Yeah, 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 that, that, yeah. And the idea of these sort of astronauts in space. That Just can never hating each other so much. Yeah, yeah, that's, that was the band, really. That sort of summed it up. <laughs> I just love the fact that they just would sit in their little compartments and occasionally watch watch themselves when they first kind of, you know, had started the voyage and they looked all optimistic and young and then they were just looking just <laughs> so, right, yeah. God, that was a, it's a great film to watch when you're young. I just, I don't know what it'd be like now, but I just remember. No, being, I don't know what it'd be like now, but it's very funny. I mean, it's very funny. I mean, I'm not much into science fiction, but that was funny. It's a yes. funny science fiction. It's, it's good. It's good and dark as well. Yeah, obviously. I, I know. And oh, yeah, because the captain had been frozen, hadn't he? And they... That's right. He'd been frozen. Yeah, he was in. He was, he'd been frozen. It was Pinback who sat up in the dome, didn't he? Yeah. So, was he the one who skated off in the end and went on to, you know? Yes, I think so. I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, at the end. 
A classic film, God. Yeah, yes. the, Let There Be Light, I think, was the famous That's it, one. yeah, that's it, yeah. That's the book, yeah. <laughs> the book, yes. Anyway, yeah, so Dark Star comes along. This is definitely in Britpop period now, isn't it? Sort of after it, really. It was about 98, 99 we were putting that together. So it's sort of, yeah, it's a bit later on, really. Um, and again, we weren't really a, that sort of band. But yeah, I mean, it is sort of, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, when, no, I mean, no, because I mean, the whole Britpop thing kicked off about 91, didn't it? Well, 94, I think it was when it was really the shine. There was these shine compilations and, you know, I just remember then all those PR companies from London just throwing merchandise at you left, right and centre. But by 90, 98, it was pretty over, wasn't it? New Labour yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah. New Labour yeah. was in 97. The next year, it was almost like Creation Records had slightly lost their way and it all, you know, Blur was no longer doing anything particularly. So the Millennium Bug, we were just worried about the Millennium Bug by then, weren't we? We didn't care. <laughs> Some people were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you did have a massive producer, Steve Lillywhite, who I've listened to yeah. recently talking. So that must have, you must have been major players at this stage because he worked on all these classic albums over his life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, we just, we signed a deal with EMI Harvest and, um, uh, just basically, we'd, we'd been, we just went on tour and then recorded an album pretty much live um, and got, we met Steve. I mean, there was a few other people who were maybe going to do it, but when we met Steve, we, he really got on with us. He really liked it and he was, he's really funny and, and such a brilliant human being. He was, he was like, well, this is going to be really easy. You've <laughs> 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 already worked it all out, what it's going to sound like. All I've got to do is capture it. And so we did that. Um, the, the first album in, in, that was in at the at the townhouse. Did you get Crispin? Was Crispin Gray in your band at one stage? No, no, he wasn't. But he was asked to be, yeah. But he didn't turn up. Oh, we he, we did some. We basically we were we got this. But I mean, it was, it was three of us: me, Lawrence, and Dave from you know Levitation, and we. We wanted to get a singer and we tried loads of different people and it just not, didn't work out. But one of the last ones was Crispin, well, the, the last one. And he came along and um, we did some stuff with him and it was really working out. His voice really worked with it. Um, but, um, and we said, yeah, let's do it. And he was like, yeah, great. And then um, at the we, we set up for the first rehearsal and he didn't show up. So that was that. Blimey, what a space case. Never mind. But then how does... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It, it, it probably wouldn't have worked. So it, that, but the, the, the positive thing that came out of that is like, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And I didn't want to sing, but it was just basically down to me. And, um, but that did lead the way the band, you know, that it, it, it led it in a direction that was kind of interesting to us. I mean, it's... Um, oddly, we're just... Um, I was just talking to Dave today. We're, we're actually putting together the, the second album now. <laughs> <laughs> Another twenty years sort of hiatus before the record comes out. Did you did so, you have the did you have the material and just never quite got there, or did you? Need no, to we did it all. We recorded it and everything, but um, the band collapsed. Dave got really ill. He had and um, 
again, we had the same thing happen with the second album. We had the record company bail on us. And the reason for that, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it sounds like I'm blaming other people. I'm not, I'm not blaming Britpop for, for what happened with Levitation, but you know, that happened at the same time. And it does, because what you gotta realize in these big companies, they're just looking at the bottom line. And it's like, you know, when, when a thing happens, where some band just goes through the roof and sells millions of records, they all want one of them. Yeah, and they jump on the next thing that's like that, and um, and that happened to Dark Star. Uh, so we basically we were just getting our second album finished. We were up at Rockford doing that, and and Coldplay arrived, and they sold. You know, they we'd already had a we'd already done our first album with the, the record company. We hadn't sold masses, yes. um, and. <laughs> they took this band releases their first album and sells a million or whatever it was millions they go okay let's look at our little um book here who have we got right who's selling oh no who are this lot <laughs> nobody sold that well fuck them they can go and then they get closer it. we were the first ones out you know so um and i think star sailor were in that was it right yeah. yes it is quite, it is quite amazing yeah. you know but, so, um, so so yeah, it all went it all went fucked up again for us. Yes, that is a bit tricky. What was yeah. Rockfield like as a as a recording experience? Because it's the residential farm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, it was good. Um, it was a strange time. It was a very strange time. I got sort of mixed feelings about it all. Um, it was a strange time anyway. But the weird thing is, we did get a great record out of it. We just didn't get the chance to to put it out of or or finish it, but we're doing that now. Well, we did, we did finish it, it was all mixed. And we even went out to Los Angeles and did some work over there with a couple of tracks, and which no one's ever heard at all, even the bootlegs don't have that. So we're putting it all together now as a, as a thing. Uh, Brilliant. And get that out. Is get Cherry out. Red Records gonna put it out for you? Or... <laughs> no way, no, not them. No. No. <laughs> it's always cherry red records everyone loves them anyway then so then do you become a kind of go-to guitar tech production manager for my bloody valentine cooler shaker and david cassidy is this true yeah that's all true but that happened a bit later i got um after dark star split our manager was working for the pet shop boys um and um they just done a record with johnny marr and uh they assumed that Johnny Marr would just come out on tour with them and do it. And of course, Johnny Marr had his own plans. <laughs> so they were like, what do we do, Johnny? What do we do? And he went, oh, you can just find some guitar. You can find a guitarist. You'll be able to find one. Well, how will he do it? It's like, well, the guitarists, they just learn how to do it and they play it. And so basically, after they got off the phone to Johnny Marr, they turned to their manager and said, do you know any guitarists? He went, yeah. And um, so he rang me up and said, look, the Pet Shop Boys are looking for a guitarist. They're going on a world tour. Do you want to do it? And I was like, well, I'd, I'm sure there's sort of more to go through than that. I've probably got to jump through a few hoops. He went, well, go and see them. And I went to see them. We had about a 15-minute meeting. And they just said, and they hadn't heard me play or anything. And they went, great. And they said, do you know another guitarist? Because we want two. We want one each side of the stage. Because we think it'll and uh, I went, yeah, I know another one. I, I rang up Mark Refoy, who used to be in uh, Spaceman 3 and Spiritualized, you know, and um, got him because he actually knows some chords. And, uh, <laughs> and the rest is history. We just went on a world tour with them. 
How did you keep that together, being on such a major? Because because with the other bands, it's very much you know you're at the heart of those bands. But with this, this is quite a nice bit like Heather Nova, a bit of a jolly, isn't it? Everything's being taken care of. You just have to turn up and keep it keep. Yeah, that. I don't. I mean, it's it's a weird one. I'm I'm not a session musician at all. But as I say, I'm the sort of person who says yes. So. Um, you know, you get yourself into these things and then you sort of wonder why. But of course, you know, that they're all experiencing an adventure and um and it was great. And working with Neil and Chris is amazing. They're just really brilliant people. They're just so funny. Yeah. And they you know, but it it was like being lifted out of your life into a completely different life, which you know had its kind of difficulties, you know, because they just live a completely different life, you know, they're different they'd live in a different world and you're sort of picked up and sort of put into that for a while and then you just plop back down again but they're very sweet and it was it was we had a lot of fun there's some, some really fun moments and there's crazy shows I mean you know played at Ross Gilder with you know after the Red Hot Chili Peppers you know it's just like it was insane it's like 150,000 people or something crazy you know you couldn't even see the people it, the stage was so huge Yes, you know, just it, it was like it was one of the weirdest gigs I've ever done. Amazing! Like, you couldn't hear a fucking thing. It was just mental. But yeah, we had some crazy times. Yes. So then, working after that, was this the time when you were working with the, you know, my bloody Valentine? Well, after film? that, um, oh, I don't know what did I do after that. I started roading, yeah, because I couldn't get. Any, I, I basically was offered. Johnny Marr asked me to join his band. Uh, and that was straight after the this sort of coming back from uh, this thing with um, the Pet Shop Boys. And I'd, I'd been away sort of for about, it was about two years, just, just 18 months, just touring. Yes. And I, I was kind of, you know, really, you know, I, I, I couldn't land, you know, I just really needed to sort of, and he asked me and I just thought, I can't, I need to sort of go home and, sort of gather my thoughts and sort of get grounded because I, I can't take on another thing like this because it's weird and however brilliant it is it's kind of weird and you know you just start to think who am I what am I doing and yes uh, it was quite kind of strange so I said no to that and um but I didn't have any work and um and a friend of mine a tour manager a friend of mine who um had tour managed Darkstar who I kept in touch with um really lovely friend um and he just got in touch with me he said I, I was actually working I was living near Salisbury and I was working for a mental health place uh doing doing music schizophrenics recording this band and it was um well it wasn't a band it was just a bunch of guys at this at this sort of um day center and um it was amazing but I mean it it wasn't paying the rent no um and I got a call from this friend of mine, as I said, and he said, look, I've got, um, I need a, I need a roadie for this tour that's starting next week. You know, there's money in it. Do you want to do it? And I went, yeah. Cause I'm, well, I knew him and again, I always say yes. So <laughs> I found myself loading into sort of arena shows doing this, uh, crazy, um, once in a lifetime tour. I did the second one. Um, it was, uh, what was the lineup? That was the was that yeah, David Cassidy, David Essex, um Wadi Wadi and 
Was that one the Bay City Rollers? But anyway, it's basically that that kind of deal. Yeah. Insane. I mean, it was insane. It's just like a kind of military operation because it's none of the, all the bands just flying on the day, all higher gear, and you just got to throw it up and they've got to do their thing. So it was it was horrendous. But we did a uh, week of that, and by the end of that, I felt completely like a completely different person and very grounded. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But that led to, one thing led to another, and I ended up sort of getting into doing roading through that, and then uh, working for loads of other people. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned um, Coldplay because I think a member of the Janitors, who I quite liked, I think one of their members kind of went on to be the roadie for Chris Morris from. Is it Chris Morris from the Coldplay? I think that was one of those. They were quite a noise band from the late eighties who. I don't know. They they were on a sort of small label, I think in tape records and stuff. And uh, I think that was his kind of big break. And he, you know, he couldn't say no to Chris Morris, really. No, Chris Martin, isn't it? Chris Martin, that's it, yeah. Yes, there you go. So then after all that experience and you've done my bloody Valentine and Kula Shaker, did you then sort of think, right, I'm going to really grind myself. I'm going to become a solo artist. No, I mean, that's always been happening in the background. I've always recorded stuff at home and always put stuff out and I had a project um, that I was doing with my wife called Mummy that's um, just the two of us do and we you know do do the odd shows I mean and, and down in Brighton where we live now um, I'd come down here that was in 2010 I came down here just sort of in the middle of working with MBV because I worked for MBV from 2007 till about 2013-14 and in the middle of that we all moved we moved from the countryside down here and um yeah, I basically all of that time we were doing other stuff. And when I got here, uh, I bumped into a lot of old musicians from back in the Canton days and the rest of it who would all move down here. And they went, Big, you're down to right, you've got to let's let you've got to come and do this. And there's a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, who has his own band. And he, um, there's the uh, Lewis Psychedelic Festival, and he said, Come down and play with us. We're doing this one song. We were doing one. We do one rehearsal. And you come. It's one song, but it's it lasts forty minutes. And he said, "But we'll do this rehearsal. There's a big jam in the middle, and the rest of it." And then, I mean, this sounds great. So, and I hadn't played live for fucking years, and um, I mean, it had been a long time. But went down and did that with him, and uh, we had such a great time that afterwards, and I brought in my mate who works for MBV who builds modular synths, and I said, right. Look, "You've got to on this." So. Um, introduced Chris to Rich and everything. And we had such a great time at this festival. At the end of it, we said, let's form a band. And I went, okay. So we found a rehearsal studio, booked rehearsal studio, you know, tried to book rehearsal studio. After the third time of it failing to get a date, I said, look, we're never gonna do this. How are we ever gonna rehearse up a band if we can't? I said, why don't we just book a gig and just turn up and play? Which is something I've always wanted to do. And for the first time, instead of the person laughing or feeling scared, or whatever, Chris just there was a sort of pause on the phone. He went, "Okay." I thought, "Brilliant!" So we basically did that, and we played it down here at the Anarchist, the Cowley Club, the Anarchist Centre, which was like going back in time <laughs> there and stuff like that. It's brilliant. And we did our first gig, and it was amazing. And so that that's that uh, that became Zoth, which we still do to this day. Um, and we've done a whole bunch of albums and. Uh, 
and a whole bunch of shows. But the great thing about that is because you don't have to rehearse, it's really easy. You just get off of the gig, you just turn up. So we've been doing that a lot. So there's been other stuff going on. As I said, the Mummy project that me and Joe do, which is uh, another album that's finished that we're hoping to get out this year. We've all had a, everything's been a bit sort of, um, you know, uh, it's been a bit of a problem the last few years trying to get things done, you know. And um, consequently, we haven't played much as well because it's been very difficult to put shows together. We usually put shows on down here. But Joe's in a band called Spratly's Japs, which is a Tim Smith offshoot band with her son that they do. And they do really well down here. Right. Um, and her and I sort of put on shows, but we haven't been able to do that for a couple of years now. So it's been... You know, everything's sort of ground to a hall. We're just getting going again, really, now. Yeah. But we're hoping yeah. you know, new material out soon. And with, with your, and with your band camp page, this is where you, this is your solo work, where you got Terra Firma. Microcosmos, yeah, that's the thing that I've been doing since the 90s. But, you know, it, most of that stuff was recorded back then. But I've done, I did, basically, this is when I was in Levitation. I was sort of toying, well, I was learning, I bought myself a little eight-track reel to reel when I was fiddling around, but that's early nineties, um, and um, recorded loads and loads of material. Um, didn't finish all of it, but slowly over the years, I've been finishing bits of it and putting it out as little albums. But yeah. That's just my own kind of little sanity outlet, I suppose. I don't know. Sort of... So, what have you got lined up for twenty twenty two? Is it sort of in the pipeline or have you got sort of release dates and possible shows? no we haven't got release dates or anything but i'm uh the big thing that i'm trying to do at the moment the first band that i mentioned in my first band was called panic sphere it's a three-piece band with some friends i knew back then when we were teenagers and um yeah it's formed in about eight, 80 1983 that was we started that and that that was the thing i did before ring um but in the 90s when after Terry left Levitation and Cardiacs was sort of having a kind of sabbatical, I was out drinking with Tim Smith and he, he just sort of said, you know, we were sort of bored. What are we going to do? And he sort of said, um, why don't we do Panic Sphere? And I was like, you're joking. He said, yeah, I'll play bass. So we put Panic Sphere back together with Tim and John Paul. Yes. Um, a cardiac guitarist who replaced me. who was in them for years and years and years. And um, with Dave Francolini, on drums um from levitation and we went off and and did loads of shows and had a great time it was real fun um and basically the story with that is none of it ever got recorded um so <laughs> in 2019 just before this stuff kicked off i got together with john paul again um bob leith from cardiacs and so I said, look, do you want to do the original Panic Sphere stuff? Three, just the three of us. Uh, so we went and rehearsed it all up and went and recorded it. Well, we recorded the drums and then we were doing the rest of it when all this stuff kicked So we did one show at the end of 2019. We were about to sort of book gigs and go on tour, hopefully, and put, finish the album. And that all got pulled for obvious oh. reasons. So, um, what I'm doing now is I've just found a place to put my studio and I'm just uh, going to finish that record. So, and that is, that is coming full circle. Cause I mean, that 
the stuff was written mainly by me and uh, Adrian, the drummer, um, from 1983, 84. Most of it was written in 84, actually. Right. And uh, so we've recorded all that stuff, plus a track that Tim wrote in 91 for Panic Sphere and a track that John wrote for Panic Sphere that ended up becoming a cardiac song. So we've done all those and that's an album and I'm, we've, it's sort of 78% finished. So that's the first thing, finishing that this year. Joe's trying to finish Spratt the new Spratless Japs record. We've got the Mummy record, uh, the Dark Star record um, that we're working on right now. It's going to get mastered in the next month, in, within the next few weeks, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> cool. There's there's a few other things that are knocking about, but yeah, those are the main things. But we've got the the thing is the Mummy album's finished. Yes, Alex Ray album's pretty finished. Dark Star album's finished. Just needs mastering. Um, and there's going to be some. We're talking about um, remastering the first Levitation album, getting that out again with extra track and stuff like that. So there's quite a lot going on now, but it's it's kind of the talk started and everyone's getting excited about doing things again. I mean, it seems like it's been a long time where everyone's just not been able to, none of us have been able to get anything together, gone through it. And now we're just coming into some time where it seems that we can pull some stuff. Pull it together. God, this together. is going to yeah. be fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased. God, this was brilliant to speak to you. And it's great to uh, hear about your, your sort of 1987 Glastonbury experience with the Travellers Field. Yeah. Sort of playing at two in the morning or sometime. Yes, it was because of my partner. You can't blame her, really, just telling me about the, her experience of her first Glastonbury and here in Ring. Yeah, so she was a fanzine writer in, in Leeds or Brest, Preston. and oh, yeah. And was kind of, yeah, that was, that was, you know, being part of that anarcho-punk scene and then going to live in squats in Leeds with, you know, members of Chumbawamba and all that scene. So um, I think, yes, because she was saying fanzines and writing letters and postal orders at the, sending those, all those things off and getting stuff back in the post was always very exciting. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing letters was the way forward, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. That's how we were kept in touch. It was great. And uh, it made, but it was funny because I did an interview with um, Keith from Here and Now last week, which was quite... Oh, did you? Yes. Oh, did you? Oh, Keith is lovely. He was I'd so... listen out for that. I'd yeah, love to hear that. he was so sweet because he, he said they used to just play, you know, free, free, and they used to pass a bucket around. And then he said... That's right, yeah. They had, they had one gig where thousands of people and they counted it and it was like 40 quid. And it was like... <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> It was like after that they had a bit of a like I'm I'm not doing that again you know for forty quid that was no. that's not the but spirit. They were, they were the inspiration for me to think actually you, we could do this full time because they used to I mean it seems crazy they used to play in all the pubs in London when we used to go and follow them around and they just to sell out these pubs you know but they you know I mean the yeah back rooms of pubs but like you know hundreds of people in there absolutely ran. Yes. And they'd be, making, they'd be making a few hundred quid and we thought, flip out if you could do this, you know, earn a few hundred quid every day, you know, just just playing. We we could do this. This could be it. This could be us. Yeah. You know, when, when we were about 19. Well, I think, well, you know, it's interesting, this guitarist with Twisted Sister, JJ Friend, she, I mean, that was the same thing. They looked at how much they had to earn to keep the band going and thought, right, we're just going to have to play every day or twice yeah. a day just to keep it going until we possibly get a sort of signed a record <laughs> yeah. label 
so it was it was the same kind of mass but it was great because here and now are still doing their thing so i think they've got you know material coming out soon so um watch this space you know well they play at this cosfest is a, the, this sort of little mini sort of hippie-ish festival um that happens every july down in devon and um they play there and we play there with Zoff. Um, we love it. It's a kind of like a miniature Stonehenge sort of festival vibe with just two tents and a bar and all the coaches and stuff. And it's about 400, 500 people and it's brilliant. It's really brilliant. It's just, it's just like a little haven of that kind of stuff. And um, really good fun, lovely people, good fun. Yeah. And I, I bumped into Keith again there the last lot, a couple of years ago down down there because I haven't seen him for years. So does with being in Brighton, which is everyone is escaping from London to go to, do you still get the Levellers? Is that still a bit of a scene down there? <laughs> well, they yeah they've got a studio down here that they still run and um, uh, yeah I worked for them briefly. I worked I, I text for them. A friend of mine they they were short of a tech and I did a little mini tour with them. Yeah, they, I mean they they still do stuff. Yes, they're pretty business savvy. They run, they all own and run the um, studio and all that. It's uh, and they run their festival. They've got a festival they follow. Yeah, can't remember what it's called, but yeah, they're they're they're, they're, they're still here. They're still doing it. Yeah, well, Brighton. I guess you know from Lee from Lee from London. You know that's the go-to place, isn't it? Really. Yeah, yeah, it has been. I mean, we moved out of London, moved to the, to the countryside and then moved here because we were out in the middle of nowhere. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in the, uh, in the lo lots of um, music business people moved down here in the kind of mid-90s as well. And I, so a lot, a lot of music stuff happens down there. I mean, it's very, it's very music-led. Yes. Yeah. That's Norwich. the problem. I think. Have you played much in Norwich? Did you do many gigs in the Norwich? Yeah, Norwich Waterfront. I remember. Yes, it's all good. That was always the, the stop off. Norwich Waterfront. It's quite a nice venue, as I remember. Yeah, and the Art Centre as well in Norwich. But look, right. so if you could have um, told your or given your sixteen or eighteen-year-old self a little word of advice or some just wisdom, is there a, a couple of things you would have just whispered in their ear, even if they would have ignored you? They definitely would have ignored me. They yeah. would have definitely ignored um, you. No, I would, no it's just <laughs> follow what you want to do. You just, just got to do that. <laughs> I don't. I, no, I wouldn't have any 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 advice really. I mean. Um, no, because I think I think did it, I think I think I did the right thing. Yes, <laughs> I mean I, I do. <laughs> I mean it may not have been. I mean it's it's not. A, it's a difficult path. It's a really difficult path, and any musician will tell you that. But um, if that's what you want to do, you just got to do it. Got to do it. Yes. It's, well, it's, it's say yes to things. That's that is the key. I know. know? It's an amazing. Be thing. humble. Be humble. Just sort of yeah. If you know. You got to do that, you know. That's it's good, right? Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing and um, an amazing oh, story. And uh, well, thanks for the opportunity. I mean, I've done an interview for twenty years, so 
<laughs> well, like, uh, if you want, I, I can always give you a link to it and then you can go, oh, blimey, um, I don't know. Um, I can't bear my own voice, actually, so I never listen to them. <laughs> but anyway, look, but this has been amazing. So, um, yeah, thank you ever so much. And if you want to, I can, you know, because you've probably got social media platforms that you can always put them on and stuff like that. No, I don't have any social media platform and I'm always been told I, I should have, but I mean, I have, um, I mean, I've got my band camp stuff, but I've got a, I've got an email that anyone can get, get in touch with me about anything on, um, yes. which, I'm really to, which is, uh, Helena.springs at Mac.com. Um, and you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with me about anything, they can do that. Just have a chat. Um, uh, but um, there's always micro, I've got a Microcosmos Bandcamp page and a Zoff Bandcamp page for sort of some digital releases. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's that, 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 that's that's brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much, and um, yes, good luck for the year, and hope it gets a bit more. Thank easier. you so much. Yeah, but it's been amazing, an amazing story. Awesome. Okay, I'll let you go. Yeah. But thanks again. See you later. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. And there you go, that is the end of a very long conversation interview. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Christian Hayes, sometimes known as Bic. I probably said that at the beginning, but I like to repeat myself. Um, yes, member of many bands. Anyway, if you want to find out more information, you can... He's got a band camp page and um, yes, just Google away for the love of Googling. Um, and also, yeah, if you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. The uh, These have all been archived as well. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Indeed, you can. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall. Have a great week. Stay safe.